Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, in the past week in the Middle East, in Israel and the Gaza Strip, uh, there's been an escalation of violence. I've been reading a lot about the current conflict. I've read a lot of criticism about creating false equivalencies between what either side is doing. Um, And I will say, as usual, civilians are almost always the unwitting victims. And in my opinion, there's very little that can be accomplished through an escalation of violence. The images that we're seeing out of that region are horrifying. I came across a package in The Atlantic uh, entitled Violence Explodes Across Israel and Gaza. Uh, We'll have that link for you on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. I mean, horrifying to see these images. Uh, you know, uh, of civilians, uh, of buildings being destroyed, of missiles in the air, of the Iron Dome defense system uh, taking down missiles. What's your reaction to seeing these very violent images? Yeah, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, this package at The Atlantic, uh, edited by Alan Taylor, um, really gives, uh, I mean, you know, a large overview of the destruction that's going on. Um, it's obviously really important to have context with all of these, um, which they, they do have captions, but it's still hard to grasp exactly what's going right. on until you see, you know, the crying young children. I think that for me personally, that's when it really kind of hits home. Uh, as you were saying, who this is affecting, it's it's tragic. The, uh, you know, the region has been relatively calm since the end of the Second Intifada in 2005. Uh, there's definitely been some provocations during that time, but this is, I think this is the first time people are saying this could really get out of hand, this could be another major conflict. Um, it's been interesting thinking back to previous conflicts. Uh, the website Reading the Pictures, which is a great analysis of photojournalism images as they're sort of published, uh, has been tweeting that Uh, photojournalists who have visited the region in the past have been sharing images of these former conflicts in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Um, And they tweeted three uh, images uh, from different photographers, uh, Barbara Davidson being one of them, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning former Los Angeles Times photographer. And some of them provided context around why they were publishing and some of them didn't. Yeah, I I feel like... It's. I mean, I'm just reiterating with with something as complex um, and that's been going on for as long as it has. It definitely requires history and context with each post, and to simply just post old photos um, of conflict in the area to just post them, uh, it's it's not the right move. Uh, the cynical part of me says that the photographers were just trying to repurpose content to stay, you know, relevant. Um, mm. which maybe is a case for some of them, but the other part of me says it's so important to understand uh, what these photos mean in history and why, you know, we, why we've moved almost nowhere in regards to this particular conflict. Really interesting to see how little has changed over the decades and how these photojournalists going in and, you know, in some cases risking their lives to get these photos and it's like, oh, you know, you do it to document, but... You also do it because you hope change occurs, and I'm not sure that much has has been changed in the past few decades. Yeah, these are probably the first time, too, that these uh, photographers are sharing these images, which were taken around 2006, in some case, like with Barbara, with Barbara Davidson. 
this is probably the first time that she's putting them on Instagram. So for them to live within, you know, a social media app, right, right. Um, it's, it's a very different experience. And it's also educating, I think, a different audience than, than otherwise might be if it's just being published on her blog or something like that. You know, when I was younger and, and thinking back to the, like the second intifada, for example, even though that was that was kind of in the 9-11 era, I think a lot of those images that I saw at the time still struck me as being, you know, slightly exotic. Um, and I will say, you know, because the Middle East seems so far away and I think visually there's a lot of things that, that seem foreign to Westerners. Um, but having seen so many images in the past few years within the borders of the United States of violence, protests, riots, related to a whole host of things from the Capitol insurrection to Black Lives Matter, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I feel a lot more connected to these images. And I think that the availability of photography, photography, like high quality photography that's made close to anyone's hometown has changed the way that people view and perceive it. And I'm thinking back to, for example, uh, the John Moore image of the, you know, the toddler at the, the border and you see that the pain and the grief of that kid and you relate back mm-hmm. to an image of any child around the world in sort of distress and some of these images in this in this package and it just gives you this sense of of like oh my god what are we doing this is it's heartbreaking yeah uh, like you were mentioning now that we've seen almost like the similar type of imagery come out of um, you know our own backyard as viewers you have a better understanding of how situations can escalate like this so quickly um, and how it can really happen anywhere. I was looking at a number of photo packages on various media websites and I kept seeing some of the same names and some of the same photos. I just wanted to give a shout out uh, to Reuters' Mohammed Salem, who's based in Gaza, AP's Mahmoud Ilian, um, and AFP's Abbas Momani. And I came across... I remember seeing these images when they they were published in 2015, but uh, Abbas was covering a lot of the uh, the right wing Israeli move into the Palestinian territory. So one of the one of the uh, flashpoints has been um, Israelis moving into areas that were designated for Palestinians and building houses there as a way to kind of exert geographical influence. And he was there on the day that soldiers showed up and one particular soldier uh, basically assaulted like an 11-year-old kid and uh, took these incredible photos, which I remember seeing at the time that they were published. But uh, these guys are doing incredible work on the ground. So thank you, uh, photographers, for capturing all of these these images. I just want to send out my best wishes for them staying safe. I know that the AP and Al Jazeera building in Gaza was... Uh, I know they were bombed. I know no, there were no casualties. Um, thank goodness. Um, but just stay safe. Politico published a very cool multimedia slideshow all about Biden's first 100 days in office. Um, all the photos were taken by photojournalist and photo shelter member, shout out, Stephen Voss, who has a phenomenal portfolio of work. Um, I love his portrait work, particularly he has a great shot of AOC and good pictures of Cory Booker as well. Um, this slideshow also, it, it's interactive in that it features audio as you scroll through it. There's sort of this interactive playfulness going on and a really good UX design as you're as you're scrolling through um, you know, one thing that struck me while 
while scrolling through this first 100 days is, you know, life is like finally getting back to normal. I've had like one very normal weekend here in New York (laughs) and it's kind of, it can be kind of easy to uh, forget just how, just how quickly that has shifted and changed. There are a lot of images in here of empty street scenes, which is what we have seen for over a year now. And it's like, Oh yeah, you know, yeah, it's still, it's still going on. Um, lots of, lots of empty street scenes. What do you think of the slideshow, Alan? I, I was very curious to know, and maybe, maybe Stephen can tweet at us. I was very curious to know whether he received this assignment to cover the first hundred days as like a single assignment or whether it was assembled after the fact because he's just shooting in and around D.C., yeah. The DC area. I mean, it, it looks, you know, with the audio and some of the, either the animations, um, I don't know what, if it's motion or their, their time lapse, it seems like it was more pre-planned than it was just random. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the selection of images and the approach really reminded me of another DC guy, uh, David Hume Kennerly, who a lot of people know, Pulitzer Prize winner, did, you know, has been on the scene since the 60s. He put out a book in 2000, in the early 2000s, called Photo de Jure, uh, where he used a Mamiya 7, so medium format, to document the beginning of the millennium. So 365 days. It's a wonderful book, by the way. But the, the whole approach of like capturing your, your neighborhood and getting the mood of what's going on uh, is how I felt when I was looking at, at Stephen's work here. Yeah. Um, and just to see the shift, you know, you, you, you've kind of alluded to this, but see the shift in like the first hundred days from January where we were still dealing with the aftermath of the insurrection. Mm-hmm. We get images of the inauguration. We move into February. We're seeing memorial images for the Capitol Police who were you know, overcome by injuries from the uh, insurrection or suicide. And then, you know, you get into March and you're seeing signs of spring and the the weirdest visual juxtaposition for me was, you know, DC's very famous for the cherry blossoms that come out in March, increasingly earlier and earlier because of climate change. Mm-hmm, but yeah. uh, the the cherry blossoms in DC were actually a gift from Japan in 1912. And oh. in this particular package, we see these beautiful blossom images alongside protest images for violence against Asian Americans. And so for me to know that history and then see these images, it was a very, very interesting juxtaposition. And then as mm-hmm. we move into April, still seeing a very militarized DC because they're still worried about escalations of violence. But then you also see uh, recovery in terms of you know people getting vaccinated and a baseball game. <laughs> and now the stadium isn't 100% full, but you know, people are out there enjoying a baseball game and you're like, oh man, finally. Yeah. Finally, we're getting back to normal. I I had had that in my notes as well, just that he made it feel, Stephen really made it feel like he was a local journalist covering a small town. And as you scroll through it, I think the audio really um, helps with that because you just become kind of immersed in the scene. Um, But I really liked the idea of just having a single photographer uh, shoot this story rather than multiple photographers. Definitely, definitely. So in looking at this package, this might sound like a naive statement, but I wonder how many photographers and photojournalists would be able to convincingly pull off a 100-day project like this that captures such a broad range of subject matter 
but is also a great encapsulation of national and local events because I'm pretty sure I couldn't do it. You know, it's easy to go out and find that one feature on a day when you're, you know, it's a Friday and the, and your photo editor says, go find that kid, you know, eating a hot dog and we'll, we'll put it on the, you know, the entertainment section of the, of the newspaper, <laughs> but to do, to create consistent photography, consistently great photography for a hundred days, that would be very challenging for me. Um, I and mean, I think he, he didn't just do it. He did it like at a very, very high level. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a great project idea. I I mean, people love having those kind of parameters, and he created them with this like this hundred day idea, whether it was his or whether it was, you know, the editors over at Politico. Either way, um, yeah, he knocked it out of the ballpark. I agree. This wonderful package called "How Washington Changed in Biden's First One Hundred Days" is on Politico, and you can find that link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Documentary and fine art photographer Meryl Meryl Meisler. Yep. Okay, let me start that again. Sorry. Documentary and fine art photographer Meryl Meisler has been photographing street and nightlife of New York City since the 1970s. Um, she's been the recipient of numerous grants for her personal work. However, she was also a New York public school art teacher for three decades. And during that time, she took a lot of photographs of her students and just their daily school life. Um, so she has an upcoming book called New York Paradise Lost Bushwick Era Disco which is set to release in June. Um, and this will be kind of her first time revealing this work that has been taken inside the school system within New York City. She taught at a school in Bushwick, um, Brooklyn, and then she taught at a school in Manhattan. And I just can't wait to see the photos. <laughs> I know. There was a really <laughs> small snippet of this work in The New Yorker. Uh, called The Photographer's View from Inside a Brooklyn Junior High. I think about how rare this type of imagery is going to become. First of all, you know, yeah. she, we're talking about her photographing in the 70s and 80s um, of this work. And nowadays, you cannot bring a, f a professional uh, camera into a public school. Mm -hmm. There are too many concerns about underage people being depicted in photos. You're going to need a model release, all this kind of stuff. Back then really kind of no rules like 70s i think about all the you know photographers <laughs> shooting musicians rock musicians and all that stuff and how you know there wasn't rights grabs and all this kind of stuff this yeah. is this is like a very specific era that's captured in film that will never be captured this way again and the images are great they're fantastic yeah absolutely i cannot wait i was i was thinking actually searched the school name um on uh, just on Google being yeah. like, I wonder if I can find like tagged Instagram photos from this particular school today to kind of see what it might look like hmm. in comparison to her work. And, you know, I couldn't find it. Yeah. I couldn't find any. <laughs> so if you go to her website at MerrillMeisler.com, you know, you find a lot of the disco stuff that she captured. So, you know, she would teach school during the day and then she'd grab her camera and go out at night to capture the disco scene. And there depicted in these images, you see the over-the-topness of New York City, you know, these crazy outfits that people had and inside of the disco and the makeup and, you know, being dressed oh up. Gosh. And then you also see Black and Latinx communities where she lived and worked. And to me, it's one of the rare instances where the, the, the photographer was really focused on capturing this sort of dichotomy of what New York is about, right? 
There's like the mm. ultra rich or ultra image conscious people. And then there's just like people that live there. And, and sometimes they're in, the, in, in poorer neighborhoods, you know, just trying to make a living, but also just living their lives. And I think she captures a lot of the joy of both sides or the mundaneness of both sides, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to note that she is born and raised in New York City. Yeah. So it, she was documenting, you know, her real home. She also has fantastic self-portrait work. Like, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I'm a sucker for self-portrait yeah. work. Her stuff is great. Well, we look forward to that book being published uh, in a month or two. We've talked about the astrophotographer Andrew McCarthy before. He's had, I mean, he's like petapixels guy in terms of every time he releases a photo, <laughs> Petapixel <laughs> seems to write an article about him. Amazing. And I've, I followed him on Instagram because I think his, his images are, are compelling. Um, he announced uh, the launch of a, a, a website to sell his prints. And he also indicated, I, ha- I hadn't known this, but he quit his job where he was working previously as a sales development and business operations uh, person for a software company. And now he's a full-time astro photographer, which Dang. I cannot believe that you can do that nowadays. Yeah, whoa, um, big moves. So cosmic, back, cosmic underscore background is the Instagram account and cosmicbackground.io is the website. He shoots from his backyard in Sacramento. And he has, you know, a tracking mechanism that helps him follow the way that the the earth rotates or, you know, depending on your perspective, the sky rotates. Um, He has a ton of software that helps him assemble thousands of images into these composites, which is pretty common in uh, astrophotography. I -hmm. will say he takes a lot, a lot, a lot of artistic freedoms in Mm. terms of, you know, inserting clouds putting in star fields behind his moon images or his sun yeah, images. Yeah, it's very m- mystical looking yeah. when he does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says uh, in a 2021 Petapixel article uh, written about him, the Sacramento-based photographer was aiming for art and aesthetics rather than accuracy, which I thought was interesting because that is his approach. He's less concerned about the accuracy of every image as he is, I think, about creating inspirational images. And in a 2019 Mm. format interview, he says, one of the challenges faced by astrophotographers today is getting their images seen outside the niche astrophotography community. Now, when you look at these images, probably your first reaction is, wow. Mm. You know, I can't believe that somebody from Earth could capture these images because that was my first reaction. I had a friend who looked at them and said, is this guy like the Peter Lick of astrophotography in terms of like, so Peter Lick is, is, you know, this uh, photographer who who has a bunch of galleries in New York and Las Vegas. And he he takes hypersaturated images of nature. Um, And there's a lot of controversy around that guy for selling the most expensive photo ever, which was actually bought by one of his investors. Like there's a lot of, it's like. Uh, like a charlatan in, in a way. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but I'm still impressed that he is carving out a living. I mean, I, I think I think it's best to characterize him as a astrophotographer artist, right? Yeah. Because they're not literal mm-hmm. images. You know, I could see some of these more like m- 
mystical, magical looking ones where he's taking a lot of artistic liberties on like a book cover. Like, I feel like this is like a book cover type of image. Yeah. His work also is very much like, I mean, NASA. Like when I think of, I'm like, oh, wow, this is okay. But then I realize, oh, is it just a dude in his backyard? <laughs> whoa, like, right. Right. whoa, very cool. Very cool. I think about his images also in the context of, you know, if you're not an astronomer, what type of image of space would you be willing to hang on your wall? Mm-hmm. And if it's just like a, a quote normal image of the moon, then it's unlikely that a non astro enthusiast would hang that on their wall. Whereas to your point, I think somebody who is like into mysticism or astrology or something might be inclined to pick up one of his images. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I thought about what he's doing from a marketing perspective. You know, he started by posting one of his moon images on Reddit. And he used the self-declared clickbaity title, I took nearly 50,000 images to create this 81 megapixel picture of the moon. And he's been an early adopter for platforms, emerging platforms uh, like Patreon. So he has over 700 patrons on Patreon who are paying anywhere from $1 and up to support him on a monthly basis. He sold mm-hmm. NFTs, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. right? So he's, he, I think his perception is being like, not only this interesting visual artist, but very cutting edge. And, and I, I want to liken him as sort of the Lil Nas X of astrophotography in terms <laughs> of, you know, using social media in a way to create hype and PR for himself that built him an audience that allowed him to become a full-time astrophotographer. I mean, it's really smart in some ways, you know, Mm. because it is ultimately like you could be the greatest photographer in the world, but if you don't know how to market yourself in this environment, particularly by leveraging social media, then, then you're not going to sell a dime. You're not going to be able to support yourself through your craft. Mm. Um, I do think that there is definitely a caution that people don't understand what he's doing to quote, reality, right? He's, he's capturing images. He's compositing stuff. He's Photoshopping images significantly in some cases, less so in other cases, which honestly is kind of an inherent problem with photography because we tend to think of the photo as being a literal capture of reality. People often interpret these photos literally, which is weird because sometimes when you, when we see like an incredible photojournalism image we're in the industry and we go, oh, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe they captured that. And then the audience at large says, oh, that's a fake image. And yet when they see like a crazy moon image, they're like, oh, my God, it's real. Yeah. One thing he he has really long captions, at least on Instagram, where he really is kind of delving into his thought process behind each photo and kind of technically how he accomplished making it. So I think I think that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's that approach, that BTS approach yeah. of revealing yeah. what's behind the curtain. Like people really appreciate that nowadays. Yeah, but, definitely. You know, a lot of people I think some people will be willing to read the caption and get that info and a lot of people will just assume that what they're seeing is real and they'll steal the image and they'll post it somewhere else and then it'll get misrepresented for what it is and et cetera, et cetera. And the disinformation mm. spreads. So but anyway, you know what, Andrew? Congratulations on all your success. I, I can't believe you're a full-time astrophotographer. Pretty awesome. So, Ellen, I got my vaccine um, at a FEMA site, 
where I can't tell you how many signs there were saying no photographs <laughs> with, with a picture, you know, the icon clip art of a camera crossed out. Um, and lots of military uh, people yelling um, <laughs> about high security risk and do not take pictures. Um, that was all fine and good. But um, apparently in Italy, museums are becoming a place to get vaccinated. And the New York Times highlighted Castello di Rivoli, an art museum um, that looks beautiful, that you can go get your vaccine. And I'm a little bit jealous because I feel like that creates a really good opportunity for a vaccination selfie, which we've talked about on the show previously. I had my vaccination in a CVS. And to your point, not the best background, although, you know, <laughs> yeah. everybody's trying to be sort of pseudo hip with these uh, clinics that they have. Um, but this particular set of images taken by the Italian photographer Alessandro Grassani. It, so this museum, Castello di Rivoli, is a modern art museum where artists have actually also decorated the wall with these incredible kind of geometric shapes. So it's almost like an incredible backdrop for a portrait session. Mm. Grassani is a fabulous photographer. He's worked all over the world. He's actually a, global, a Sony Global Imaging Ambassador. And if you look at his website, which we'll link to on our blog at blog.photoshoulder.com, you'll see like this guy's legit. And the images mm -hmm. in this particular package on the New York Times, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, I wish I got my vaccine over there. And I wish <laughs> I had my vaccine selfie in, in that museum. It's a, it's a wonderful idea to use that space in that way. Absolutely. I don't know why, you know, I guess in, in the United States, uh, a lot of the sports team owners um, offered up stadiums. So I guess that's the American equivalent, like a sports-centric American equivalent. Um, Definitely. It's unfortunate that, is, yeah. that cultural centers haven't been used in that way for vaccinations. On the other hand, I'd be kind of afraid maybe that some crazy people getting vaccines would start to like deface work at MoMA or something like that. So oh my God. <laughs> maybe it's for the better. That would be that would be a bummer. I went to the Whitney this weekend and it was amazing and it was packed. packed. Oh yeah. Things are getting crowded. <laughs> Things are getting crowded. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Vision Slightly Blurred. While you're listening to us, why don't you hit that subscribe button, leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at us at Photoshelter. We'd love to hear what, what you're looking at and what we should be talking about. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.